decisions every day about how to best invest time, personnel, and resources for the best return and results. The scriptures say there are two things on earth that will last forever, God's Word and the souls of people. It's my hope that you, your family, your church, and perhaps even your business will pray about giving a tax-deductible donation to the Bible Live at this time. Together, let's expand this historic broadcast of the scriptures to other cities across our nation, a sound investment for both time and eternity. You can donate by credit card at the Bible Live website, www.thebiblelive.com, or mail your check for the Bible Live to P.O. Box 18888. That's P.O. Box 18888, San Antonio, Texas 78218. Welcome to the Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Soapy will ask questions from the Bible Live leads. You call in with the correct answers, and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of The Bible Live, your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Soapy Dollar. Uh, I'm the soapster, and uh, Jacob may be, may be giving us a call to log in on a couple of the ideas or a couple of topics. He's not in the studio this evening. He's getting ready for some uh, examinations this coming week. And uh, so he's medical examinations, folks. That's what I mean. And so uh, not sure. he'll probably call in and give us a thought or two or something he's been gleaning. Now, we're at a little bit of a free-for-all this week. We have finished our readings for this year, our Rotation, our normal reading schedule takes us through the entire Bible every year. And we finished up with the book of the Revelation last week. Uh, and uh, so this week we're kind of free to talk about anything we want to. And uh, so we, we put together just a few topics. But most of all, we're very, very free to talk with you tonight, especially uh, just wondering if any of you have thoughts about this old book, the Bible. Uh, so what it teaches, what it says, uh, anything about the Bible, is it authorship, uh, it was, is it supernatural and source, uh, is it from God, uh, how can we believe it, is it reliable, is it accurate? Uh, any of these great questions about the scriptures that you have, or even a specific passage uh, and a specific question uh, that you have that you might like to talk about tonight, we're kind of open-ended and, and uh, able and willing to take some of your calls and, and, and uh, talk with you about those issues, about those particular things. So uh, I hope you'll get ready to give us a call. The area, the, uh, area code is 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. So you can give us a call and uh, talk about uh, anything on your heart, any question you might have or any observation you'd like to make, something uh, going on in our world that you want to comment upon. Maybe maybe you want to talk a little bit about uh, politics, where we are right now. We're coming up on what so many people are saying, the most important mid what midterm election in our history and so on. Uh, there is a lot at stake, and there is a, a, 
I would say probably a very uh, historic moment in the sense of uh, the nation's teetering. We're, we're, we're divided, so incredibly divided across the nation uh, in terms of general policy and direction that we're taking. And so maybe you have a thought about that. It is, it, there's a lot at stake the direction of the country. Uh, so maybe you'd like to talk about it, even from a biblical or, a, or spiritual point of view, what's going on. We'd, we'd like to just throw it open to you tonight. We've got 90 minutes to talk about uh, the Bible as its relative relationship and it's, uh, to, to our lives individually, our personal lives, our, our uh, world that we live in, what's going on. And there are a lot of things we could talk about. So give us a call if you'd like, 340-9585. And I'm going to count on my buddy Jacob if, if he's feeling up to it and can call in. Of course, we always love to hear from him uh, about the Scriptures as well. He is so knowledgeable, particularly helping us understand that that um, hmm, that cultural, linguistic, the Hebrew uh, element of the scriptures, and, and not only the Old Testament, uh, but remember, Jesus was a Jew, <laughs> a, a committed, dedicated Jewish person. Um, uh, his disciples were all Jews. The early believers there in Jerusalem, uh, to, to a great extent, came from the Jewish world. And the scriptures that they wrote, the passages, the gospels we have, the letters that were written, that were written as well with that Hebrew Jewish perspective. Um, they knew the Old Testament. They knew the Tanakh. And uh, every time you squeeze Jesus, out comes the scriptures, you know, and, and, and the apostles the same. So um, we can um, we can uh, talk about those things as well, any of those things you'd like to. Uh, again, 340-9585, that is our phone number. What, I guess the topic I'd like to bring up first is something we've talked about a number of times, and that is... Uh, is the Bible reliable? And I'd like to give you some ideas about that. Uh, some of you are wondering, uh, even as believers, as Christians, what is the basis uh, of our confidence and our trust in the Scriptures, in the Bible? That the, the Bible you read, you have before you, uh, is it accurate? Has it been passed to us accurately? Are we reading essentially the not the very words because we're reading it in a different language, but are we uh, are the ideas that we're reading the ideas and the thoughts? Is it uh, demonstrably what the authors, what the different writers of the Old and New Testaments? Is it essentially what they wrote, what they meant, what they intended, and what they put down um, whenever they were writing? They're different books. So uh, I thought I'd, I'd kind of give you a little bit of background on that question about the reliability of the Scriptures first uh, and and tell you a little bit about there. there is a test that you can apply. Uh, a lot of folks don't understand that. What, what test? How can you actually know if the Bible is reliable? Uh, and so that is... Uh, that there are tests we examine the scriptures in the very same way that we would examine any other book, any other writing of antiquity. There, there are there are historians, and they this is their area of expertise. There's a military historian named Sanders, C. Sanders, that uh, 
he wrote uh, books and the textbooks that historians use for many, many decades. And um, so I, I want to give you the test that he applied to any document that he's trying to evaluate its historical reliability. And they have three different names. Uh, and actually, there's there's another fourth test that we can talk about more and more because it has to do with archaeology. But the tests that he mentions are one is called the bibliographical test. The other is called the internal evidence test. And the other is the external evidence test, which would include, in some ways of understanding of that, would include archaeology. But archaeology is such a new, um, relatively new science, uh, especially with all of the uh, dating uh, mechanisms and the dating tools that we have and and other uh, ways that we can examine, um, for example, scrolls. I remember at the University of Tennessee, there is a, they are viewed something like we have the, uh, what is that thing, John, when you go to the hospital and they put you, put MIR or the M, what's that thing that they put you to, it takes pictures of you or of your body, the MR, whatever they actually, what they did is they they used that machine on an old scroll that was burnt and and they didn't dare try to take it apart and open it because it would crumble, and so they used that machine and they were then able to to uh, digitally unroll it instead of uh, physically, and it's just an amazing thing. It just that's just happened in the, within the last year or two, if if I remember correctly. So all the time, uh, what, the advances of our ability to examine documents is is really increasing with the uh, advances of technology. But let's talk about these for a moment. The bibliographical test uh, of, of a document. In other words, when you take the Bible, we know that it's not just one book. It's uh, 66 different books written over a long period of time, about 1,500 years. And we... Um, we can test it. Now, the bibliographical test ha- is an examination uh, of the textual transmission. Uh, how did the document ri- arrive to us? In other words, since we don't have the original document itself, how reliable are the copies that we have in regard to the number of manuscripts that we have, the time interval between the original uh, writing and the existing copies and so on. All of those are factors that would be considered when we're talking about the bibliographical test for the reliability. Now, in this particular case, the Old and New Testaments have a very different uh, uh, history. Uh, the, the, the way we would we would the way the test the the bibliographical test would uh, apply to manuscripts from the, of the New Testament is very different from the way it would apply to our evaluation of the Tanakh the Hebrew Scriptures. So uh, we can talk about in a moment. Just let me give our caller here on the line. His name is Jacob, our dear friend Jacob. How are you feeling, pal? Hola, hey, I'm a regular specimen. <laughs> How did I know you were going to say that? All right. Yeah, and you know what a specimen is, right? I do, I do, I do. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm quite a specimen myself, actually. So. Okay. Well, you know, actually, the doctors and the nurses, they all get it wrong. Uh-huh. 
is, you know, actually what a specimen is, for the benefit of the audience, is it's an Italian astronaut, a specimen. A specimen, yes, indeedy, all right. Well, listen, how, how do you feel about my choice of topic for this first segment? Oh, I, th- I think your choice of topic uh, comes in number one, two, and three. All right, there we are. Well, let, let me ask you, uh, just as we get started, um, I'm sure that uh, um, Jewish believers, people f- to look to the scriptures. Uh, now, I-, I know that in the Jewish um, in the Jewish world, there are several there are different views about the reliability and the um, and even the divine authority of the scriptures. Right? I mean, there are folks who are quite liberal and and don't really. I mean, it's a nice book, and it's got some nice things in it and good stories and all, but it's not really the Word of God uh, delivered in, in some people's view. Uh, the same thing happens in the, uh, in, the, in the Christian world. There are those who are quite liberal in their understanding that they view the Scriptures and others that are very clear about, wow, this, is, this, this book is from God. God has authored it. He has inspired men and women to cause them to write down their experiences and what with God and and they're reliable. We can, you know, it's God. God has inspired them and moved them to do that, and they can they tell us things that are very important about God, about ourselves, about our world, about and, and about even uh, God's purpose for us. Uh, wh- tell me a little bit. How is that an important topic? Do do you, do they talk about that quite a bit in the Jewish world about how how can we know this book is from God or how can we know this book is is even accurate reliably accurate the words that we well have? yes yes sure of course that's always a big debate uh, but um, I will say I did want to address one thing you talked about about fifteen eighteen months ago they found uh, the scroll you're talking about and it was all you know very cemented together, stuck together, and they took it and they did x-ray, as you say, and uh, it is, it's older than the Dead Sea Schools, and it's the book of Leviticus. Do you know any update about what they found, how, how accurate it was, when they compared its writing to yeah. the current uh, writings and so on? Do you know anything about the, the well, results what of the comparison? Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, I've got this all, you know, second, third hand, of course. Uh, but uh, but it's, it appears to be uh, accurate with what we presently have. Yeah, of course, you know, in the Hebrew, of course. Uh, but it, uh, it appears to be accurate uh, with the pages that they can discern. It appears to be accurate with what we, ha- we presently have. That's amazing. That, I, and sometimes we really underestimate. We under uh, we, we under exaggerate. What's the word? Uh, uh, we really don't talk about how important that is. That when you move back, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the famous Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in these caves at the base of uh, at the southern end of the um, Dead Sea, in, in these caves and so on. The the books now there there were a great number of um, of documents found in that in that find in that uh, archaeological find in that cave, and some of them had to do with the Bible, and some of them did not. Uh, had to do with other works and other uh, other uh, Bibles, but um, 
the it was nine it took us back 900 years before uh the copies that we have presently and that was it was an amazing everybody kind of held their breath thinking wow what are we going to find out is it going to be uh completely different and, and show that we can't we can't trust the way the documents came to us, or are they going to be uh, essentially the same and give us the confidence that, wow, they, it's astounding that, yeah, we, they haven't changed. There were, you know, a lot of people think, oh, but other people wrote these books, and then they changed them to whatever they wanted to say and so on. They have this, people, critics of, of the scriptures will say that, but that is... No, and, and everybody is entitled, as you said a minute ago, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. However, I must say... My opinion is, and of course, I'm famous for saying if everybody's entitled to opinion, but if you want to be right, you'll agree with me. Uh, and, and you're an expert in your own opinion. That's I am an expert in my own opinion. And to plagiarize Mark Twain, uh, I find the smartest people agree with me. <laughs> okay. But, uh, but anyway, no, I will say this, that what I have found, generally speaking, is that and it doesn't make a difference if it's Jewish or Christian or whatever. Uh, that I found that the ones that are most, whether they use the surface level, say, oh, it's full of contradictions and they don't know any. What I found generally is the ones who are most unfamiliar with it are the ones that kind of dismiss it. And right. I, I think my conclusion is, is because that is a way to, uh, to rationalize, if I don't, uh, why should I waste my time learning it if it's not accurate? And so it's a, it's kind of a cover story, I personally think, for not being acquainted with it. Exactly. But I do wanna, I do want to tell you something neat. Since you brought it up about the going backwards, uh, you know, uh, in the, the the Jews and the Christians, you know, the share. Uh, Majority of the same Bible, except for, of course, for the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you know, there's something remarkable, absolutely remarkable about the Judeo-Christian Bible that appears nowhere else in any other religion. Uh, yeah, I would guess at it, but I'm going to let you go with that topic. I'm not going to okay. or, or jump in there. I, I, I would guess at what it would be, but go ahead. What is it? It's it's this. The thing that you look at all religions, and they they all seem to start with one individual. And he has a revelation. He may be pious. He may be great. He may be, be, I don't know, maybe sometimes he's right. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But um, they start with one person. He, he gets disciples. He spreads it. That kind of thing. Right. Uh, the difference between the Judeo-Christian Bible is this: is that no other religion makes the audacious statement that all, between two and a half and three million people heard God speak and give the Ten Commandments. That is a hard lie to perpetuate. Well, exactly. In the New Testament, you have the apostles, you have the, 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 there was the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, then there was the 12, and then beyond that, there was the 70, and then beyond that, there were these concentric circles of uh, up to 500 men and women, we're told, uh, Paul tells us in Corinthians, that up to 500 men and women saw Jesus resurrected. Uh, and so it, yeah, it's and that's a, sort of a one-person thing, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and, I, and I'll even strengthen your example from the New Testament. It's uh, in the book of Acts, you've got... Uh, You've got everybody receiving this Holy Spirit at the same time. How many people was that? Was that 2,000 or 3,000 or something like that? Well, there were a number of conversions. That I think there were 120 in the upper room uh, uh-huh. at the time when the Holy Spirit, we're told in Acts chapter 2, when we began this new era of the Holy Spirit coming to fill and to uh, the indwelling, uh, it's called, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this new arrangement, this new relationship of God's Spirit with, with His people here. Uh, evidently, there were 120 in the upper room, and then they went out on the streets, and uh, uh, what is it, four or 5,000 conversions as they preached to the multitudes and so on. So it was well, see, yeah, but, uh, and, a affair, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to focus on the fact that it didn't start with one person. The more than one person heard it. Exactly. And if uh, if more than one person heard it, that gives you and dictates a certain amount of reliability, because because you can't have everybody, you can't have two million people, let's say, saying, "Oh man, yeah, we all had this, uh, we all heard something different." And I will tell you this: the reason that uh, I that the the Jewish scriptures, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, tend to be, I think, a more reliably passed down is this. There's a system for having uh, seven scribes, and each one will hold the pointer, and they'll, they'll circle the Torah as they copy it, and they point the spaces and the, uh, and the letters themselves. And if they make a mistake, they cannot go on. That panel has to be replaced. It can't go on because uh, they have a statement they all say when they began copying it, and they will say, uh, if I change one letter, I will change the world. So they, they do that, and it all gets passed down. And then what proves this, uh, three, well, let's say you know, 3,000 years later, if you find Jews, and you do find Jews around the world, and you'll find you know, the copies of the Torah and that kind of thing around. And what's remarkable is when they'll find them, whether they came down through China or, you know, or someplace far in the Middle East or wherever, when they compare them, yes. they, they almost all are like 99% the same. Yes. That is, and, if you're talking about the bibliographical test in the sense of uh, talking about the transmission of the text uh, forward, that's the difference. Uh, the Old and New Testaments have a different sort of a, a standard there. Uh, the, the New Testament, the great, great reliability of the New Testament is based on the the, the the incredible number of copies. Now, a lot of people think the number of copies is a bad thing. That, oh, man, look at all these copies. You can't. Well, the number of comp, extant copies are what are able to, we are able to trace back and find out the, the original text more easily. So, so it, the textual comparison is incredible for the, for the New Testament. Uh, as a, for, for example, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey from Homer is also, a, it was written in 900 B.C. The earliest copy was 400 B.C. And 500-year difference, and there's only 643 copies. Whereas the New Testament, there's two things. One is that the distance between the, the action, the facts, the events, 
and the recording of the events is much, much shorter, the uh, 25-year time span, basically. Uh, in fact, is most of the New Testament writers, uh, they appealed to, they themselves claimed to be eyewitnesses of these things, and, and frankly, they even accused their enemies, the critics, of saying, you saw this, you know this is true. Uh, and so they were that close to the events. And there, the sheer number, there are over 25,000, 24,000 extant copies that we can use in the New Testament that allows us to text back and, and find out uh, with a great deal of confidence the, uh, the original text, what it said, and then the reliability of the transmission. Now, the Old Testament is different, though, because it, it doesn't have that, that number of copies, but it does have this incredibly interesting and in, in, uh, you went through two periods if i remember correctly jacob maybe you can uh get me on this but just before we go to the break there was a talmudist period from uh, basically uh 100 a.d first century to 500 there there was a Talmud, and i have here in front of me the disciplines of the talmudist in regard to the scriptures what it had to what what they had, what the rules that they followed, and there's something like you just cited. Uh, they're they're amazingly detailed, and they uh, the exact number of letters, uh, the, the middle letter the, of each section, the, the 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 space between the letters. It's an astounding piece I'm looking at here now, in front of me. But also there is. Um, we had the Talmudist period. Then you came into a period called the Masoretic period from 500 to 900, the, a different group of translators. And they, it also has here the, the rules and, and the procedures that they followed in writing of these texts. And, then of course, then in that case, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have other scrolls that, uh, that we've had as well that all of them point to an incredible level of reliability in terms of their transmission. Uh, the, the Bible that we have today... And you've said this many times, uh, these, these good, clear, modern versions we'd have, the NIV, the uh, New American Standard, the uh, New Living Translation, these are really, really well done, and w- scholarship is, is excellent. They, they sometimes, each of them, do their translation from a little bit of different perspective, but they spell that out for you most of the time in the first part of their Bibles. They tell you, here are the criteria we used, and uh and, and when we did this, here's why we, you know, the language and how we, uh, and how we have put it into English. So, but we really do. I, I, I think people can be and have so much confidence in the historic reliability of the scriptures. We have essentially what the prophets, what Moses, uh, what they wrote in the Psalms. Uh, we, I, with all my heart, I, I've looked at it. I've studied it deeply. I think we have exactly. Uh, what they wrote, just to an extremely high uh, purity level, for, for that matter. Well, there's our music. We've got to take our break. Uh, you can join Jacob and me here on the air. We're talking about all things biblical tonight. We're taking a little bit of time to talk about the, the Bible in the larger sense, not just our specific readings this last week. We finished up with the uh, uh, Bible for this year. We read the last part of Revelation. But now we're talking a little bit about the Bible in general, how reliable it is. What are some of these tests that we can use to evaluate the historic, reli- the historic reliability of the Scriptures? 340-9585, that's our phone number. 340-9585, we'll be right back. 
Dr. Stan Shelton with offices at Loop 410 and Broadway has taken care of the Dollar family that's Suzanne and me plus our three children for the past 25 years. Suzanne, tell the folks about our dentist. Well, like you say, Dr. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to DrShelton.com or call 590-7878. Grateful praise satisfies us and pleases God. Welcome to today's encouragement from Our Daily Bread. Today's reading is titled, Getting a Grip on Gratitude, and it was written by Soshi Dixon. The years of weariness caused by chronic pain and frustrations with my limited mobility had finally caught up with me. In my discontent, I became demanding and ungrateful. I began complaining about my husband's caregiving skills. I griped about the way he cleaned the house, Even though he's the best cook I know, I fussed about the lack of variety in our meals. When he finally shared that my grumbling hurt his feelings, I was resentful. He had no idea what I was going through. Eventually, God helped me see my wrongs, and I asked my husband and the Lord for forgiveness. Longing for different circumstances can lead to complaining and even a form of relationship-damaging self-centeredness. The Israelites were familiar with this dilemma. It seems they were never satisfied and always griping about God's provision. Even though the Lord cared for His people in the wilderness by sending them bread from heaven, they began craving other food. Instead of rejoicing over the daily miracles of God's faithful and loving care, the Israelites wanted something more, something better, something different, or even something they used to have. They took out their frustrations on Moses. Trusting God's goodness and faithfulness can help us get a good grip on gratitude. Today, we can thank Him for the countless ways He cares for us. Today's encouragement was provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries. Get connected with AM630 The Word on social media through Facebook, Twitter, and TuneIn. Click on the icons at the top of the page at am630theword.com. That's am630theword.com. Hey, this is Bob Olszewski. Thanks for listening to Plugged In. 24-year-old pop star Halsey's latest single, Without Me, tells the story of the singer investing in a relationship that she feels was one-sided and, in retrospect, that she recognizes was emotionally dysfunctional, too. And there's some raw honesty in the mix about her own shortcomings that led to some of the relationship problems. also includes some harsh profanity and sensual imagery that detracts from the point that Halsey is trying to make. And that includes a racy video teaser that promotes the song. So I'll give, without me, a one and a half out of five for family friendliness. For the full review, visit us at PluggedIn.com slash radio. I'm Bob Olszewski for Focus on the Family Plugged In. 
Find out more about your favorite programs and the ministries on AM630 The Word by going to the program guide at am630theword.com. There, you'll get connected to the ministry website, email, and phone number. Plus, find out when your favorite show airs on the program guide at am630theword.com. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. All right, we are back, and uh, we're hoping to take some of your phone calls tonight. If you'd like to take advantage of the opportunity, we're talking about the Scriptures, and we're talking about how they um, came to us. We're talking about the reliability, the historical reliability of the Scriptures. If you're drowning uh, in this IRS debt first segment, we talked about these three tests that are applied to all books of antiquity. It's not just the Bible. but uh, Now, remember, this is not talking about in this particular, uh, when we're talking about this particular topic, we're not talking about the divine inspiration of the Bible. Is the Bible the Word of God? There's some different elements that we look at to establish that, some different tests. But we're talking about now the historical uh, textual reliability that we can have now and i've talked about the first test is called the bibliographical test and it has to do with two factors one the number of extant copies the number of copies we have that we can go back and trace back and see uh the level of change of the in, in the in the um document from one let's say a hundred year period or 900 or a thousand year period can we see evidence that, that the book has remained consistent that the the uh it has not been changed and that we can clearly see uh, the bibliographical test for both the old and new testaments are a little different because we have different in the new testament we have they're much closer to the writing between the writing of the book and the events that it describes. So that's one thing. And then, of course, then we have an extremely large number of books of extant copies that we can compare with in the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament is, is in particular, extremely well uh, documented its reliability and its historicity. Now, the Old Testament is different, but it also has a powerful... Uh, and Jacob has been talking about that a little bit to us. It, it has this very powerful element of the method methodology involved in the transmission of the scriptures. We talked about the Talmudists in the early uh, from the first century to fourth century, and then we talk about the period of the Masoretic text. And both of them have these um, the the way they transmitted the scriptures is remarkable and then of course we've had these archaeological discoveries of the dead sea scrolls and others that we've been able to jump back in a very dramatic sense let's say up to 800 900 years back and see that the uh, the the difference is is uh, is is minimal uh as a as an example of that let me tell you the Im- the impact of the the um, Dead Sea Scrolls that we've talked about, they're so famous, uh, discovered somewhere, wasn't it somewhere in the, in the late 40s, wasn't that when they were discovered, Jacob, uh, 47 or something like that? 
Oh, yeah, they discovered there was a, a, a period of years where they discovered in Quran. Yes. Uh, the Quran uh, by the, by the, in the caves there. Yes. And that, and that shows you that whoever was placing them there, and they placed them in stone vessels and hid them back in the caves. And uh, so they obviously had the intent of having something preserved beyond their lives. And the, and one of the reasons the Talmud came into being, and actually there's two different copies. One was called the Jerusalem, one's called the Babylonian. And they really came into being, uh, and, and as you said, about uh, first century forward, and, uh, and it actually codifies a great deal of the, uh, the oral law, because the, uh, the truth is there were so many Jews getting killed that they were a little afraid that some of their oral teachings might be lost. So they started writing that stuff down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was uh, in the uh, Talmudist era, the early, in the early yeah. from the first century to what, fourth century times? In, yeah, in, uh, in the Masoretic period, we also have uh, the Masor, the tradition. They, mm-hmm. Each of them had this incredible reverence for and respect for the text, and they took very, almost very extreme uh, methodologies to to assure that they didn't make a mistake, that they got it exactly right. Uh, for example, uh, Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was the um, uh, he was the head of the uh, British Museum in in London, uh, in a great great historian in his own right. He says about the uh, Masoretic period, he says, besides recording varieties of reading tradition or conjecture, the Masoretes undertook a number of calculations which do not enter into the ordinary sphere, sphere of textual criticism. They numbered the verses, words, and letters of every book. They calculated the middle word and the middle letter of each. They enumerated verses which contained all the letters of the alphabet or a certain number of them. And they did a lot of kind of trivialities, as we might call them, uh, to... The, to secure and make sure that they could measure, um, you know, even physically measure, uh, where the, where a certain letter appears and where the middle of the of the book was, and so on. That that would be ways that they could change not one jot nor tittle. It says not even the smallest letter nor one tiny part of the letter of the law should be lost or pass away. And, and I, I was talking about the um, the. Isaiah Scroll. I was looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls are made up of about 40,000 inscribed fragments. And from those fragments, more than 500 books have been reconstructed. And some of them are not biblical, other extra-biblical books and so on, um, that shed light on the religious community of Qumran, uh, uh, the writings as uh, Zadokite documents, a rule of the community, and so on. They have a lot of others. But in terms of the scriptures... The oldest complete Hebrew manuscript we possessed were from about A.D. 900, or 900 years after Christ. So how could we be sure that they're accurate transmission since the time of Christ in A.D. 32? And thanks to the archaeology in these Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the scrolls was found was a complete text of the, of the book of Isaiah dated about 125 years before Christ. So that took us back about 1,000 years older than the manuscript we, the oldest manuscript we had previously possessed. And uh, th- th- there was a great deal of interest in how, how would they compare. Well, of the 160, there are 166 words uh, in Isaiah 53, in, in the Hebrew um, version of Isaiah 53. 
Of those 166 words, there are only 17 letters in question. Ten of these letters are simply a matter of spelling, which does does not affect the sense at all of of the of the passage. Four more were, letters were minor stylistic changes, such as a conjunction. Uh, the remaining three letters comprise the word light, which is added in verse 11 uh, in, in uh, Isaiah, does not affect the meaning greatly. Furthermore, this word is supported by the, elect, the Septuagint and the uh, first cave of Qumran Isaiah scroll. It, it's supported, so it may have brought a great deal of, of an, an element of, of increased accuracy, I know about that word light. It's also a very interesting. Um, it's a very interesting thing to do uh, when you talk about, for example, the Book of Mormon. Uh, <laughs> I, I won't go into that, but it, it does have a, a very interesting application to the reliability of what you know the Book of Mormon as it came out. Which is uh, uh, one part of the Book of Mormon is um, is entirely the Book of Isaiah. All it is is just the book of, but they include that that one era. <laughs> they actually include the era uh, that, um, and you would think, you would think that if it was truly given by God and through an angel, that the angel would have gotten it right. But uh, uh, it's pretty clear they just copied the book of Isaiah. And so they, uh, I didn't know that. So they actually include the era. Huh? Yeah, they included the era in the. Uh, in the Book of Mormon, the angel, you know, the angel got it wrong, I guess. Anyway, I don't yeah, want to go there. I'm not trying to. I mean, that's I just, it's something we. Uh, I, will, I will tell you something about interesting about errors. Um, I was dra- driving through New Mexico one time, and uh, and I got stopped by the police. And the policeman come up there, and he had a toothpick and a hat, and pushed back a little bit, and he said, "And he said, how are you do? How are you doing?" He said. Uh, you know why I stopped you? And I said, no, I have no idea. Wasn't I doing a speed limit? And he said, well, actually, uh, you violated an error. And I said, I did what? And he said, you violated an error. And I said, <laughs> and I said I'm sorry, what What did I do? Are you talking about and, an, an error? No, an don't, error? don't, don't, don't. Step on my line. Well, step on my line. I'm, I'm an Apache Indian. I couldn't help it. I just uh, go ahead. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, he said. He said. Didn't you see those big arrows painted on the highway? <laughs> and I said. I said. Are you seeing arrows? And he said. Yeah. You didn't see those arrows. And I said. No. I didn't. I didn't see the arrows. And I said. Hell. I didn't even see the Indians. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry for stepping on that, but it's just a natural thing for an Apache to think. And when I heard the word era, that's what I thought about. Well, anyway, you, I, I was talking about the uh, the text here. Thus, in one chapter of 166 words in the Isaiah 53, there's only one word, three letters in question after a thousand years of transmission. And, man, that's, that is an amazing that really is a, just an amazing development. It gives us a great deal of confidence in it. So that's the that's the that's the bibliographical test that it can be applied to both the Old and the New Testaments. And uh, in either case, they're going. It comes out with flying colors. Uh, the, they're a little different uh, because of the the history the the history of each of the Old and the New Testaments. But uh, they pass the 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 bibliographical test. Uh, in, in, in just really in flying colors. Now, the, the next test is called the internal evidence test for the reliability of the Scriptures. 
And um, this one has to do with um, does it pass internally? uh, Does it seem to be telling the truth? Uh, Is it accurate in what? Are there internal contradictions and so on? Uh, and, and this, at this point, this is where um, Aristotle comes in when he talks about evaluating documents. He talks, the benefit of the doubt is to be given to the document itself and not arrogated by the critic to himself. Uh, um, John Montgomery, another great uh, scholar on these matters, said, one must listen to the claims of the document under analysis, not assume fraud or error, unless the author disqualifies himself by contradictions or known factual inaccuracies. Now, the main difference between, uh, in our modern era, the main, uh, when you talk about so-called experts, the, the great difference they have is that uh, the higher criticism, the people who criticize the accuracy and the reliability of the scriptures, in most cases it is due to a dismissal of the supernatural. In other words, a priori, uh, they have a, a bias against the supernatural, so so nothing supernatural can happen, so therefore the Bible has to be false. And, and uh, of course, that... <laughs> That is that just can't be an accurate way to approach this, but we're ta- because we're talking about uh, God who moves in time and space and history, and He does act and speak, and uh, there are supernatural elements to that revelation. So anyway, the the internal evidence has to do with that looking at the different passages, and one of the things that you're a great, as far as I'm concerned, Jacob. One of the ways you've really helped me over the years is that you have such a great grasp of the Hebrew scriptures, the the, the old the Tanakh, the old what we call the Old Testament, uh, and, and you brought that input and you brought that insight to your evaluation of the New Testament, and w- so that you pick up on a lot of the times, um, uh, sometimes better than than we Gentiles at times when we're just reading it in English and. And uh, and so on. You pick up on the connections between the New Testament, the references uh, in the New Testament to Old Testament passages, and I think that is just a. I get some of them, some of the more obvious ones, and you, we can all use our our notes, our notes in our modern Bibles that tell us this is a quote from Isaiah, this is a quote from Hosea, this came from the Psalms, and so on. And you see that the New Testament is just full of these connections. Uh, they were just steeped in the Old Testament passages, Jesus and the and his, the follower, the apostles. But you you help us do that in a way beyond anything I've ever known before, in that you help us find those connections. And that's all. That's what the that's what the internal evidence test is all about. It's connecting and see, is there a consistency uh, between from one passage to another? And of course, I, I think you you've illustrated that to, to a great extent for me, and, and more than you probably ever uh, knew, or maybe even wanted to. You you help me uh, when you connect the Old and New Testament passages. It to me it. Uh, it certifies the accuracy and the, the reliability of, of the New Testament scriptures uh, and of the entire biblical revelation. I don't know if you have a thought on that or not, but well, I was just enjoying the compliment, actually. <laughs> That's good. Well, it's it's a sincere one for sure. Uh, 
do, do you and you seem to get that a uh, you know you you get that a lot you look now at the new testament deeply and so on and and uh, as a jewish person reading the reading the new testament you pick up on a lot of that language the thing like you were the first one to tell me about jesus uh the sermon on the mount being actually a fulfillment of the command in leviticus or or in the, or next actually, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, Deuteronomy. Uh-huh. Okay, go ahead. Uh, and yeah, and, and it's it's called in Hebrew. It's called the Hakel, and it has to be done uh, uh, on the anniversary of every seven years, and it can only be done, as it says in Deuteronomy, by the king. And so, this is actually a proclamation. And you remember in Matthew seven twenty nine, off the top of my head. It says everybody was amazed because he taught with authority and not as one of the scribes. Well, if we're thinking that that means as God, that's great. But I I will suggest that what it means is he was teaching as authority as the king because only the king can teach that. And that's at the very end of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And, and And actually, the book of Deuteronomy itself is... Uh, a sermon on the mountain, uh, and and that's why it's a little different. And the Ten Commandments are actually if somebody is trying to construct something, they could actually just copy everything and make it identical. But what happens is, and what's fascinating from Genesis through um, Numbers in Hebrew. Every one of those books start off with the exact same word. It's the word and. But when you get to Deuteronomy, it no longer says and. It begins, these are the words of Moses. And therefore the tradition began that, because Moses was kind of like functioning as a king, then you'll find that Joshua does it in the book of Joshua. Mm-hmm. And he has the meeting and, and all the kings, and it's right there in Deuteronomy that this is what must be done. I, I personally think, that uh, they under that the Romans understood, and I think the Jews back in Israel understood that when he was doing the Sermon on the Mountain, because uh, it means the assembly. What he, I think, then everybody knew that only the king could do that. I think it was a public declaration that hey, it was I'm the king. claim uh, that because he was doing the the role fulfilling the role just like when he went to john the baptist for all things to be done correctly and in order he went to a levite his second cousin instead of going to the corrupted uh priesthood in in the temple Uh, in the same way we see jesus this is one of those ways that quietly and, and unperceptively perhaps to us as gentiles we don't sometimes note the significance of it we don't realize oh that's what he was doing and that's, I, I would say that's where you help us a great deal by bringing that, connecting uh, the Sermon on Mount to this command, this understanding that the king uh, every, periodically was to read, the, was to teach the, the Torah to the people. And that here we have Jesus actually doing that, not just a nice Sermon on the Mount, which we, we think is great and wonderful and we got all our meaning, but I had never seen it as a messianic claim that he was doing something that he was supposed to do as the if he was the rightful king of israel he was supposed to do that to teach the torah and uh, right. that that to me and has I, just been amazing. 
Yeah, and, and that's why when they crucified him, as, as it says in the Gospels, they put that sign on there, here is the king of Israel. Yeah, that was the he, accusation. He claimed to be the king yeah. of Israel, yeah. And when did he do that? It was when he did the Sermon on the Mountain, right. because only the king can do that. That was a public declaration and challenge to Rome. Well, that's part of the internal evidence for the reliability of the Scriptures. Just within itself, does it... Uh, both old and new, and you, you know, the, just being supernatural doesn't actually eliminate it from being reliability. That that's uh, a bias against the supernatural cannot uh, is is not a reliable um, thing to bring to the text. The idea is, does it? Do they uh, are they in a general agreement? Do they did they get the facts right? And sometimes there there have been things that. Couldn't have been right, and it can't be right, and so on. And and yet, a century later, archaeological discovery comes along, or something else happens, and they find out, hey, that was right. The dating of that was correct. Uh, that event really did happen. We find a, a monument that has a, an inscription that tells about that certain event, and so on. Um, it uh, it, it is. Uh, it's just astounding. And so we have the bibliographical, then we have the internal evidence test. I don't know if I've covered that. I wanted to make that clear to folks what the, in, uh, the internal evidence means. Um, this ability to tell the truth, it's closely related to the, to the witness nearness, both geographically or chronologically, to the events recorded. And so uh, in the New Testament, of course, the accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus were recorded by men who had been eyewitnesses themselves, and, or, or, or they quoted it. Like I said before, they often said, you saw these things. And so they were talking to people. They didn't, whenever they started talking about Jesus rising from the dead, they didn't go off to some foreign land and start proclaiming it there as something. You, well, you just got to believe it. Take it by faith. They you know, the, the empty tomb was only a 15-minute walk from downtown Jerusalem. And so they went right there is where they began to proclaim these things. And so, uh, and they called upon the, the, the witness. There are thousands of people who had actually seen those events. And they, and they uh, appealed to their witnessing of those events as well. This, this, uh, all of that is part of the internal evidence and the reliability about the dating, the, per, the events, the personages involved. And many of these writers were excellent historic, uh, historians. Luke, for example, they gave time and date. And, and I was noticing that I was reading the book of Daniel today, um, thinking I might talk about that a little bit later in the program, but um, the idea of this dating, how important it is, and uh, for example, I think it's the book of, which one am I thinking of, Ezekiel in particular, and a lot of the prophets, they were very careful to give, and this was happening, this is the date, when this guy was the emperor, and this was happening, and so they uh, they give us those details. So that's the internal, the external evidence uh, for the re- for the reliability of the Bible is is has to do with other documents, other historical material, whether it confirms or denies the internal testimony of the biblical documents. So we look at other uh, historical things. Like I said, there are 
uh, monuments that have been found. They have inscriptions on them and so on, and it gives us confidence and understanding about the, the people of Israel being in Egypt, captive in Israel, Egypt for 400 years, and, and uh, the coming out of Egypt and, and so on. Uh, the travels, there are so many details listed, and th- these can be checked out, and, and, uh, and they can be evaluated uh, today uh, from other historical sources, other writings, uh, other you know, archaeology, uh, and so on, for their accuracy, their reliability, and authenticity. That's the external evidence. You know, uh, you know some of the things that, uh, that drew my attention was if you know the ancient uh, historical expectations of, uh, of uh, the stories, the attributes that the uh, Messiah would be exemplifying. If you look, if you're aware of those, then you kind of catch them what's going on in the Gospels. Because uh, when the Gospels were written, they were relying on those ancient expectations or attributes. For example, when it talks about uh, uh, Jesus walking around, and he got his first uh, first four disciples. Yeah, uh, those disciples we uh, we can discern that the two disciples, uh, two of them were from uh, the tribe of Zebulon because it, the dad's name was Zebedee. And, okay. And then the uh-huh. and so he was a member of the Sanhedrin. If I remember, he was, he was on one of the top twelve. And you explained and, that last week. That's why John may have been uh, exiled to the island of Patmos instead yeah. of killed, uh, uh, executed like some of the others, is because he had a dad who was rich and powerful. <laughs> well, he had influence. I don't know if any Jews are rich yeah. at that time. Okay, he had influence. Okay. Come to Jesus. All right. Well, there's our music. We've all finished our, our second segment. Uh, we've covered the the um, these three tests. I hope you'll remember those, folks: the bibliographical test, the internal evidence test, and the external evidence test. Uh, those are some of the reasons that we believe that the Bible is reliable and accurate. We are not talking about the the divine sourcing that these inspiration. Word of God aspect. That's a, those are some different uh, factors that we look at to establish that in our minds. So anyway, don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. is the Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. All right, we are back. Thank you for joining us. This is our final segment for tonight's uh, edition of The Bible Live. We're not covering specific passages or books as we normally do as we make our way through the Scriptures every year. But uh, Jacob and I are talking a little bit about the historical or the broader scope of things, the historical reliability of the Scriptures. Uh, how do we know the Bible is accurate, reliable, the, the verses, the words that we have? in front of us uh, that we can learn from and uh, about 
things eternal, things spiritual, and our walk and our relationship with God himself, and also about the way we should live as God's people, the way we should treat each other, the way we should behave in uh, our society, our communities, our families, the way we um, should treat each other as as the people of God and also those outside the faith as well. All of those things are part of our question about is, is the Bible re- reliable? Is, are we, do we... Has it been passed to us in a reliable way? Now, Jacob, I want to ask you, I want to talk a little bit about in this segment, if, we don't, if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about prophecies. Now, uh, I've already talked to the, the, the bibliographical test, the internal test, the external test. Those are historic, written by, these are tools that historians use to evaluate Many books of antiquity, uh, as I mentioned before, the works of the Iliad, the Odyssey, the uh, other books from from ancient history, they they use this to find out uh, how reliable the text, uh, the transmission has been to us. So it's a very normal thing. Uh, one of the tests of the of the the supernatural sourcing of the Bible is. Uh, prophecy. That that is one of those things that the Bible is full of prophecies, uh, near-term prophecies about somebody having a baby, some prophecies about uh, some battle somewhere, some wars, uh, some country is going to overcome another country. Uh, There are all kinds at all levels, uh, uh, not supernatural, but uh, climatology, uh, there there are floods, there are are famines and so on, spoken of hundreds uh, of prophecies throughout the scriptures. Now, some of the most well-known prophecies have to do with uh, what they call the Messianic prophecies, telling us things about what this Messiah, this Redeemer, this Savior is going to be like, some characteristics of his life, so that we we would recognize and know who the Redeemer and what his work would be and what would be his... uh, what he would accomplished in uh, the the big scheme of things in the plan of God, but I, w- I was wanted to ask you, Jacob, in terms of prophecies, what are some of the prophecies that are most highly? Uh, in the first place, uh, how important are the prophecies for Jewish men and women as they look at at, at the the uh, Old Testament? I have noticed that some of the things that we consider prophecies as Gentiles, as we look back and read these passages, these prophetic, you know, from from the prophets Hosea and Amos, Obadiah and Micah and you know Jeremiah and so on. Some of the things we I've noticed that some of the things we think of as being prophecies, uh, you may not uh, think of them exactly as a prophecy. But what what are some of the prophecies? Uh, how, how do Jewish people look as you look at the text about prophecies, and then what are some of those that that you most value that that have been most that are most encouraging to you in terms of your trust in the scriptures and your even in your own spiritual life? Well, uh, yeah, there are there are several, and we actually don't catch them because they were predicted and they already occurred. But if you actually go back and study some of the books. 
you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and whatever, uh, you'll find that those are were way in the past. They predicted some things, and they did occur. And historically, we can determine that they did occur. Uh, but probably one of the most significant ones to me is something that occurs in the book of Esther. Mm-hmm. You you know the book of Esther? I do know the book of Esther. Uh-huh. Uh, well, you, I, I'm thinking about Purim or... Yes, yes, uh-huh. I know Purim, that, huh? that this, this uh, uh, Vashti, the wife of the emperor, was... Uh, Taken dethroned because she refused to show up at a drunken party for for the king's generals and so on. So she was uh, she was put aside and and the men got together and thought, well, boy, you you better not let her come back because then all the women would talk back to their husbands. <laughs> boy, were they crazy! Um, but um, anyway, then this young Jewish girl won something of a beauty contest. Um, Am I thinking of the right Esther? Yeah, I am. Yeah, and, uh-huh. and she was uh, she for a period of time was placed on the throne as the uh, queen, and uh, we have this and how it worked out that she ended up uh, essentially saving the people of Israel from being uh, from being destroyed or, or, or slaughtered because she uh, acted on behalf of of her people and and yeah yeah the book of Esther. So that is, what prophecy do you see in that? Tell me about that. Well, it is actually the dates that Haman and his boys were hung. Because in their names, because as you know, also is the uh, a Hebrew, somebody had a lot of time on their hands because the Hebrew language is also a number system. Yes. So if you go through their names, uh, Hebrew doesn't have... You know, small letters and capitals. But when you go through their names, there is a several letters in their names that are only written at half of the height of the rest of the words. And so you start looking those up, and you will find a date. And that date is the date that the ten Nazis were hung uh, in 1947, I believe. I think I actually, I think I have a note here. Um, it actually, is because uh, I keep it because it's so remarkable. And that that could not have been forged. It could not have been uh, uh, created later because now these are high-ranking Nazi officers uh, from. Uh, yeah, at the, were these those famous trials that came after World War II? Were they part of the Nuremberg trials? The Nuremberg trials, yes. Um, and Hitler did have a plan to entirely rewrite the entire Bible, and they were taking the Jews out and inserting the Aryans. Uh-huh. Uh, they're not the same Aryans that we refer to in like Persia, that kind of thing. They're a different type of Aryan, mm-hmm. but. Uh, the, he, one of his real expert biblical scholars was a man named Julius Stryker. And, and they were, and, and when these people, these ten got hung, and remember, ten with Haman got hung. Uh-huh. Haman, Haman is actually a descendant of, uh, the king of the Amalekites. Right. Agog? Agog, huh? Mm-hmm. So, but when they got hung, 
Julius Stretcher, just before they hung him, you know, he was the, the he was very knowledgeable. He's an expert, but he was, of course, he wasn't Jewish, but he's one of the top that got hung. They got hung in 1946. Uh-huh. And what's fascinating is that when you go down through it, you can actually look, and in their names are these letters that are only half the height. You can't make this up. <laughs> and it gives a date of 1946 and those are the same that's when these guys years later mm-hmm. and see the jews kind of consider hitler to be a descendant of Haman themselves uh-huh. so uh, we're going back all the way to agog and the amalekites at any rate but 1946 when they were hung in their names in the scroll or in the book of esther you'll find the letters are only half the height it gives it and that becomes a date and it's fascinating because Julius Stryker knew that because just before they hung him, he his last words was uh, Permfest 1946. Now, what's interesting about that is it was 2,300 years earlier before these ten got hung and Julius Stryker got hung. Uh-huh. 2,300 years, 2,300 years earlier is that date given in Haman's boys' names. And that's the kind of thing that you cannot, and what's fascinating to me is, and I guess maybe because it's Hebrew, but you know, that's the kind of thing you just can't put together and and fudge together and say, oh, it was done afterwards or something. You can't do that. But, and so when when they were hung, uh, they actually, uh, had, knew the date, and and Stryker knew it. And in the New York Times, it was actually in the paper. I, I understand below the fold, you know, below the fold of the newspaper, but that what his words were. And quite frankly, it had been a little bit of a stumping thing for Jews for you know for a couple thousand years. And so they didn't, nobody knew exactly what it meant. But Stryker, when him and his boys got hung, these he, ten top Nazis, he pointed suddenly, it out. He pointed it out, but every, then everybody understood because you looked and you said, wow, that's what that's been telling us for over 2,000 years. <laughs> that these, the ten, and there was ten hung, Hitler's guys, Heyman had ten sons. And they were every one of them, and you go back through the plans that Haman had, plans that Hitler had, and it's almost identical plans. And that's the kind of that's one of the prophecies that I go back and I just and I you know it's fascinating me because I know a lot of books on prophecy and everybody writes all kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. but there's that one and there's some other ones like that. And you go back and you say, wow, this just cannot be fudged together; it can't be made up. And I've never seen anybody just really write a book about it and say, oh, gee, look at here. This is this guy actually knew, and we didn't discover what it meant. But when it happened, and it was actually in the New York Times, uh, that they actually discovered that uh, what it meant. And then everybody understood, wow, in the story of Esther, the ten sons were hung. It was saying that in the future, a quote-unquote descendant, Hitler, basically of uh, Haman, who was a descendant of Agog, of the Amalekites, his top ten guys, Hitler's, you could call them his sons, 
were hung by Cayman sons, and it gives a date just by the size of the letters. And you can look, and anybody, even if you can't read Hebrew, you see the size of the yeah. letters. Yeah, yeah. And I can't, I can't understand why that hasn't been just really talked about. Well, and, and, well, you and, and I have others. talked about it. That's uh, that's important, and and I and I hope people have heard and listened. Maybe they've looked it up and seen. Uh, it, it is that is the power of of prophecy. The, the, and what I mean by when the Bible talks about prophecy, of course, it's not always talking about uh, foretelling. It's not always talking about predictions of the future events. Sometimes, essentially, the idea of a prophet or prophecy is a foreteller. He is someone who who pronounces the word of God, who preaches God's word to the people. Uh, so the idea of a being a prophet is not always the, always the idea of prediction or fore, foretelling. You know, often it's just forth-telling uh, the, the word of God to the people, preaching and calling them to repent and get their hearts right with God. But to authenticate that and to give authority to that, uh, we're told clearly in Scripture that God revealed things to prophets. They understood at times things that nobody else, that hadn't happened yet. And uh, to me, that's a fascinating topic because I've always wondered, how did that guy know that? You know, how did they know these things? Uh, and, and we're talking about, oh, uh, I remember remember when we talked about in Isaiah where uh, writing somewhere around 700 B.C., he names the king the name by the name of Cyrus, he said, who will who will someday uh, will. Will pre, that will, will give permission for the exiles to return to Jerusalem and to Israel and to uh, repair and rebuild the temple, and he uses the name Cyrus. He hadn't even been born yet, and so uh, you know he predicts uh, that a man named Cyrus, who would not be born for about a hundred years, would give the command to rebuild the temple. Which was still standing in Isaiah's day, even as, it, and he's talking about he's going, you're going to, he's going to rebuild it, which means it would be uh, torn down, and that it would not be destroyed again for more than a hundred hundred years, and there it is. So we we have a lot of the, a lot of prophecies about. Remember, we we try to point these out as we go through the scriptures each year. The, the, the and, and Sophie, I'll tell you. Just as another example, uh, we know since you're talking about Cyrus, you brought uh-huh. something in my mind. Daniel, of course, is the uh-huh. one that points it out. And he says, hey, you know, Cyrus is coming along, and uh, as the understanding is, is that Daniel's the one that pointed it out to Cyrus and said, see, your name's right here. <laughs> uh, yeah. And he says, who, me? He said, yeah, you. Anyway, so since you brought that up, the question is, how did uh, let's say the wise men, as the story goes in the Gospels, yeah, yeah, yeah. stars in the sky, and they say, "Hey, let's go tell what a Jerusalem was a Messiah born." But no, but it's not in there how they knew that the star would predict a Messiah. Exactly. Well, and you know where it comes from? It comes from Daniel, because Daniel taught. He became what was called the. This is in the sense of prophecy, uh, like prediction kind of stuff. He he was what became because everybody knows the word magi or uh-huh. magi, uh-huh. the magi. Well, he got the he became the chief of the magi's at the time, and his name was a in their language it was what's called ragamag, and so he was like mag was like became magi. Anyway, so he told them 
about a star appearing. Well, right. where in the world? There's nothing in there about him having a vision and seeing a star and saying, hey, you know, there's going to be a star and there's going to be this. It's not, but he knew the Bible. And in Exodus, it, it talks about a star, and Moses was born under the same star. So it was setting a, a precursor, an attribute, if you like, exactly. that when it happens again, it'll be like another guy. And people will say, well, where is that? Where is that in Exodus? Well, it occurs two different places. Right. And it actually gives the name of the star. And he knew what that meant. And for anybody that doesn't, uh, don't have to worry about looking it up, if you go back to the old uh, Charlton Heston movie, uh, The Ten Commandments, you know, where he played Moses. Right. And, and I've told many people this. Go back and watch the first five minutes. Uh, Pharaoh's sitting on his throne, and on one side of him are his soldiers, and on the other side are his so-called wise men. And, they, and within the first five minutes, they're talking about, there will be a deliverer born. And uh, Pharaoh says, oh, I don't believe all that kind of Jewish uh, mythology and all that kind of stuff. And the wise men say, well, yeah, but the Jews do. And he says, well, how do we know that? And the wise men right there in the movie actually quote Exodus, and say, there's a star in the sky that shows his birth. It's right there in the movie, but nobody pays attention to that right. part. And then later on, when the people of Israel leave, uh, they try to hire this prophet from Persia, Balaam. You know, that's the one whose donkey talked to him. And he talks about this star that will rise uh, and so on. Again, you have a reference to a star. I don't. Uh, some people trace that back to the as well to this idea that another reason Daniel or the Magi knew about this star that would mark the birth of uh, of a Messiah, of a Redeemer, a Savior. Well, let me let me tell you, let me tell you my favorite prediction. Now there are all kinds of things. Tyre and Sidon, there are those. Uh, I mean, there's just so many that we could go in there, and they're also very interesting about Samaria, about uh, other nations, and so on. But uh, I go back to Daniel, and I, I mentioned it the other week when we were reading Daniel. Daniel nine, chapter nine says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for the for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks and 69 weeks. That means weeks of years, 483 years. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to, to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. He will make a covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offerings. I'm I'm reading more than the actual prophecy I'm intending to talk about, but the point is is that he actually says from the issuing of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, that would be the start, and he gives an actual period of time of uh uh sixty two weeks plus seven, sixty nine weeks 
Uh, and these are understood to be weeks of years times seven would be uh, 483 years. And people have worked that out. Now, what, what the hard thing was to figure out, where does it start? From which there were, there were four decrees spoken of. The decree of Cyrus that we just talked about when he released them to go back and rebuild the temple. The decree of Darius, the decree of Artaxerxes to Ezra, and then the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. But only one of those decrees is a decree giving them permission and in, in, in sending them back to, to Israel to rebuild the city. Three of them have to do with the rebuilding of the temple. Only the decree to Nehemiah, and you can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Only in that decree is, is he, he uh, given the permission and the ch- charge to go back and rebuild the city itself. And so if you take those, uh, those weeks and you calculate them, you have to do various calculations. I don't want to bore everybody on the radio with doing it, but... Uh, you have to take uh, you multiply the sixty nine weeks by seven years for each week, uh, and that gives uh, four hundred eighty three years. Then you multiply that by the number of days. But the number of days is the Jewish understanding of the number of days in a year three hundred and sixty, uh, and the, and then you come up with one hundred and seventy three thousand eight hundred and eighty days, and then you track that back from the issuing of that decree, and and. Uh, you you have to translate those days then into the uh, 365 days of the year. So you translate, you divide that um, to get the 365 days a year. You do all this math, and it's all worked out uh, there in great detail. And then it comes right down to the day of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the month of Nisan 10. In A.D. 33, and uh, a week later, uh, he, he is crucified. The terminal event is the presentation of Christ himself to Israel as the Messiah, as predicted in Zechariah 9 as well. And that materialized. That happened on Monday, Nisan 10, or March the 30th, in A.D. 33. And on the following Friday, April 3rd, Christ was crucified or cut off, as the phrase that Daniel uses. So it's just... That, that that particular prophecy to me now Daniel predicted the rising and the falling of the of the empires you know the Babylonian Empire and the Medo Persian Empire and then the Roman Empire and and the breaking up of the Roman Empire into ten subdivisions and all I mean that was just astounding what he did but I find this one about the the sixty nine weeks from the issuing of that decree to rebuild Jerusalem. To me, that one just—that's the one that just blows my mind. How do you? And when you do all the calculations and the cal, and the calendar changes from 360 to 365 days and so on, five hours, 48 minutes, and all, and you do all of that, it comes out exactly to that week, uh, the Passion Week, beginning with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and then ending with his uh, death and crucifixion. I. That's the one that gets me, Jacob. I, 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 I'm, I'm, Daniel fascinates me and astounds me in many ways, but that is the, that is the uh, prophecy that, that really does it for me. I, 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 it's just so, so, so convincing. Well, we've, we've talked about the Bible. We talked about uh, how we can know it's historically accurate and reliable. And then we've kind of taken a look at some of the, the prophecies. Uh, these are one of the ways that we know about that 
not only is the Bible reliable and accurately transmitted to us over the centuries, uh, and we can rely on what we read today as being uh, the words, the thoughts, the ideas that, that were actually written down and, and, and uh, intended by these prophets, by these authors of the Bible and so on, Old and New Testaments. And then they have these these predictions, these prophecies, just one of the evidences that the Bible is actually God's Word. Um, we could talk about that more and more, but our music has come up, and I uh, hope you've enjoyed it, folks, just to get a chance to uh, maybe, I don't know where you would hear this kind of thing before. Maybe you'd have to read to get them, but we put them on the radio for you tonight so that you can uh, know about the bibliographical, the internal, the external test, and the prophecies. What do you tell us, Jacob? The Bible Live is dedicated to helping See you next week, everyone. To our culture and is brought to you by Crew Military Ministry. Mailing address is P.O. Box 18888. That's Box 18888. San Antonio, Texas 78218. Hear the entire Bible every year on The Bible Live, weeknights at 930 on this great station. Then join Soapy every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration, and valuable prizes on the, the Bible, Bible Live Quiz Show. Visit our website, BibleLive.com. That's BibleLive.com for more information about Soapy and the Bible Live broadcast. You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help crew military minister to our military personnel and broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world.